It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Podcasting hour. I'm your host, Johnny Oddball, filling in for PJ Frightful, who still hasn't been seen since New Year's Eve when he opened the crypt of the ancient pharaoh Nutakatuman. If anybody knows how to find him, please, please send him back here because I am not good at hosting this podcast. I'm not even allowed to go at Dick's Sporting Goods anymore. Anyway, hi, welcome back. We've got a new episode today. Should be pretty good. Ryan Daly is going to talk about some Night Force comics with the guy from the Doom Patrol podcast. But before we get to that, I've got a scary story for you. This one is called Last Train to Eternity. It's from Secrets of Haunted House, issue 26. Ahem. After making a deal with the strange Mr. Jennifer, old Walter had a great new job as a train conductor again, driving the brand new locomotive across a beautiful landscape. But we pull out to discover that the train and the track is all a model. Jennifer is a sorcerer who shrank Walter down so he could conduct his model train set. And the kids who look at the train are blown away by how real everything looks. Wow, that's so shocking, don't you think? Wait a wait, hang on. Oh, I started recapping the story on the last page. Oh, oh Johnny, you bonehead. Oh, somebody please find PJ Frightful and get him back here. I keep screwing this up. I just want to go back to coaching Little League Soccer. Why those parents get so mad at me? I'm not violent! We're going to take a break now. Then Ryan Daly and Wilfred, I think, will be around to talk about Doom Force. Hope you like it. crippled scientist with a short temper and a chair built for action. The bandaged man and woman and the sentient energy that connects them even as it tears them apart. A woman with multiple personalities and a different superpower for each one. A redneck who can see the future but only 60 seconds at a time. The street that travels the world with fabulous style. The actress trying not to play the role of a freak. Hot hands. A boy who swims, flies, crawls or runs like a beast. Eight-faced girl who has imaginary friends with the capacity for unimaginable terror. The fifth richest man in the world and the mind games he plays. An Indian woman who controls fire and ice, but never the team she leads. Man who is a robot. We doubt there are stranger things than the heroes of the Doom Patrol, but join us on Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, and hear for yourself. And we're back. I'm Ryan Daly, joined once again by my good buddy from the DC OCD podcast and Waiting for Doom, it's Mr. Paul Hicks. What's happening, Paul? Uh, I'm just here podcasting, mate. What are you doing? 
Same thing. Go figure. <laughs> wow. And, Podcasting buddies. Yeah, yeah, right, right. We're going we're to have to find some way to do that because uh, we are here to talk about Night Force probably for the last time because wow. right now we're going to wrap up Volume 1 today covering issues 11 through 14. Uh, and I have no plans to pick up there or cover any subsequent volumes after this. Um, yeah, we made it to yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, another another finish <laughs> yeah. for, for Ryan Daly in the podcasting world. This is like Secret Origins in this. <laughs> this is the first <laughs> commitment that I made when I first started this podcast more than two years ago that I've come like anywhere close to finishing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're almost done with Batman in Nightcast. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, right, what are we talking about? Uh, well, yeah, as I said, we are covering the last four issues of Night Force Volume 1. This is issues 11 through 14, which is one story arc called Mark of the Beast. Now, you might be thinking, didn't you cover that last time? No, but that's just because the previous arc was just called Beast, and this is Mark of the Beast. Totally different. I'm not sure why Marv Wolfman decided to do it that way, but he did. So, Yeah, um, no. So people, just like last episode, we're going to cover this whole arc as one big story rather than approach each individually. That means get ready for some lengthy pre-recorded synopses as I summarize these four issues. Go, Ryan, do it. <laughs> Night Force, issue 11. Writer Marv Wolfman, penciler Gene Colan, inker Bob Smith, letterer Todd Klein, colorist Michelle Wolfman. Mark of the Beast, Chapter 1. Passages. In 1934, a cabal of American businessmen meet in a seaside mansion on the coast of Maine. These men have been secretly funding Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany, and are expecting to hold power over him when he becomes Chancellor. Then the door is kicked open, and three men wearing Nazi swastika armbands and carrying machine guns slaughter the American businessmen. Before the police can arrive on the scene, the three Nazi agents hurl themselves through the window and down to the rocky ocean below. That night in Germany, the Führer himself is haunted in his sleep by the ghosts of the dead, who swear he will die for his betrayal. Cut to present day, which is actually 1983, a young couple named Thomas and Harriet Carter have bought the same mansion, which had been sealed by the government for nearly 50 years. After they move in, the Carters are assaulted by the ghosts. Harriet tries to defend herself, but a kitchen knife won't hurt a ghost. It embraces her and seems to possess her. Another ghost presses a burning hand against Thomas's head and tells him that the Carters will do what they say from now on. In West Virginia, Jack Gold, previously seen in the first story arc, is struggling with writer's block. His new wife, Vanessa Van Helsing, is summoned by Baron Winters to Wintergate Mansion. Thomas and Harriet Carter ask Baron Winters to help get the ghosts out of their house. Thomas removes bandages from his face, revealing that the ghost burned the number 666 into his forehead, and nothing will cover up or heal the burn. Winters suspects the case will be very dangerous, but he agrees to take it upon himself. He gives Vanessa some period-appropriate clothing, along with a chauvinistic lecture about how women can take forever to get dressed that would have been dated and stupid even back in 1983. Then the Baron and Vanessa step through one of the doors in his mansion and emerge in New York 1933. 
After getting an egg cream from a street vendor, they go to a carnival owned by the Baron in Flushing Meadows. The Baron speaks to a man named Wooly, who runs the freak show, about setting up a private show for tomorrow, after hours. That night, Baron Winters goes to the 5th Avenue apartment of Arthur Lane, who was the leader of the American businessmen, who will eventually be murdered and become a ghost. Winters convinces Arthur that he's working with the same outfit and that Hitler needs more money. He gets Arthur to arrange a meeting with all of the other Cabal members and rendezvous at the carnival the next night. Night Force, Issue 12, Mark of the Beast, Chapter 2, Greater Than the Sum. Baron Winters and Vanessa Van Helsing meet with Arthur Lane and his cabal of American businessmen at the carnival. Vanessa's psychic power can no longer summon demons, but she is still able to sense the presence of evil, and she's definitely getting that vibe from these guys. They go into the Baron's back office, where the six businessmen are joined by a seventh, a man dressed in the style of India or the Middle East, who calls himself Alphys Omega. Vanessa tries to warn the Baron that the evil and darkness she senses is coming from this man, but it's too late. The now seven men join hands in a circle, with Winters and Vanessa in the middle. They recite some words, and then transform into one humongous beast. It appears as a four-legged dragon with a long, whip-like tail. Only this dragon has seven heads, one for each of the men, and the heads appear to be those of lions but with long horns. Each of the seven foreheads bears the mark of 666, and above that, each head wears a crown of gold. The head in the center has a gold crown encrusted with jewels as well. The Baron and Vanessa run for their lives as the giant beast gives chase. The carnival goers scatter in blind panic, but our heroes make it to the tent that will port them back to the Baron's mansion, just in time as the beast breathes fire that incinerates the tent behind them. Back at Wintersgate Mansion in 1983, Vanessa and the Baron catch their breaths. She asks Winters if she can go back home to her husband, but the Baron isn't finished with this case. He recognizes the monster, but cannot place the memory. He must seek the help of a mysterious other woman, whom he suggests has reason not to like him very much. But Winters cannot simply let this case go. Instead of sending Vanessa back to Jack in West Virginia, he pays the two of them $10,000 to go investigate the haunted house in Maine. When they arrive, they search the house, and Vanessa finds a hidden stairway in the wall behind a painting. They start to go up the stairs when they're confronted by the ghosts of Arthur Lane and the others, who recognize Vanessa from the carnival 50 years earlier. The ghosts attack Vanessa and Jack, throwing them through a glass window. Winters finds a picture of the beast in an old copy of the Holy Bible. Then he goes through one of his doors and meets with a wheelchair-bound African woman named Katina and her son, Gowan. It is clear that there is a lot of bad blood between Winters and Katina, including but not limited to the fact that Merlin the Leopard belonged to her before Winters. He asks her to use her powers to save Vanessa and Jack. Night Force Issue 13, Mark of the Beast Chapter 3, Past Tense Katina and her son Gowan demand to know why they should help the Baron save Vanessa Van Helsing. What's so special about her when he never gave a damn about anyone else? 
Baron Winters tells them that years ago he had an affair with Vanessa's mother and that Vanessa is, in fact, his daughter, a secret she can never know. Reluctantly, Katina agrees to help. Gowan is none too pleased since he is, in fact, the Baron's son. After they leave, the Baron confesses to Merlin that he made up the story about Vanessa being his daughter to get them to help. In Maine, the ghosts hurl Jack and Vanessa out a window onto a balcony. They are about to push them over the edge into the rocky bluffs below when Katina and her son arrive in wisps of green smoke. The ghosts attack the newcomers, but Katina simply exhales her own literal inner demons. Her demons attack the ghosts, destroying some, but a few fly away in terror. With the mansion cleansed of evil, Katina tells Jack and Vanessa to go home. Back in Wintersgate, Thomas and Harriet Carter are accusing the Baron of failing to solve their ghost problem. All of a sudden, Tom bursts into psychic fire. It kills him, leaving nothing but a smoldering skeleton and a psychic image of the beast on his head. Katina and Gowan return to Wintersgate to tell the Baron they expelled the ghosts, but he informs them that the ghosts are not dead. They are far too powerful for that. In fact, he fears they are too powerful for him and gives in to despair. He tells Katina that he can no longer manage the Night Force, that whatever masters they both serve must find a replacement for him. Katina refuses this and uses her magic abilities to transport both of them across time and space to an ancient temple in the jungle. Winters climbs the stone steps of the ziggurat, Inside, several people, dressed in robes and ram's-head masks, surround a pit of glowing mist. Goan tells the Baron that he must enter the memory pit. Winters and Katina both strip naked and jump into the swirling mists. The Baron begs Katina not to lead him through his memories, but she insists. He is pulled into the universal mind and begins experiencing his memories. He sees himself younger, as part of a monk-like order, studying next to a younger Katina. He sees his memories of falling in love with her. He sees ages of time and experience pass, while all along he loves Katina. But their kind were not permitted to love each other. Some kind of space knight with a laser pistol ambushed them in the past, driving a psychic rift between them. Now, in the present of the memory pit, Possibly the same psychic space knight comes to blast Winters and Katina again. Night Force Issue 14, Mark of the Beast, Chapter 4, The Final Conflict. The space knight, for lack of a better word, shoots its laser gun at Baron Winters and Katina, but Gowan shows up somehow and throws the stormtrooper-looking thing into a hole. Winters, Katina, and their son all return to Wintersgate Mansion. The Baron believes that taking on the Beast of Satan is futile and tries to get the others to leave. Gowan, who hates the Baron and tells him so constantly, refuses to let his father quit. The two of them go through one of the doors that port them back to the 1930s to find Alphys Omega and stop the Beast. They go to Arthur Lane's house, brushing past his secretary. When Arthur opens the door, he senses Gowan's motive and he changes into a red dragon. He explains that the seven of them don't have to be together. They each have the power of the beast. The dragon hurts Gowan. Baron Winters picks up a broken piece of wood and stabs the creature in the back. At first, it seems to have minimal effect, but after a second, 
the dragon falls down dead and turns to ash. Arthur's secretary is a little shaken by the sight. Meanwhile, Katina goes to the mansion in Maine and waits for the ghosts to return. When they do, she uses her astral form to travel into their ghostly essences. In the swirl of dark evil, she is confronted by Alphys Omega, who attacks her with psychic energy. She defends herself, but the astral world around her begins to collapse. Alphys Omega transports Katina and Gowan and the Baron and the Secretary to a psychic dimension. He turns into a dragon and attempts to kill them all. Katina tells her son to channel all the power and all of the training he spent his life preparing for. Suddenly, Gowan is imbued with green energy that swirls around the other heroes like a protective shield. Alphys Omega resumes human form and shoots red fire out of his eyes. Gowan deflects it, sending that energy and his own back at the beast who is incinerated and dies. The Baron, the Secretary, Katina, and Gowan suddenly appear back in the mansion in Maine. The Secretary, whose name is Alice Jones, is confused. Katina takes them all back to Wintersgate in 1983. The Baron tells Alice that she should stay in his present time with him. If she goes back to her time, it won't end well for her. But if she stays here, she could be his secretary, and eventually join Night Force as a fully liberated and empowered woman. Katina and Guan tell the Baron that they're staying at the mansion with him to make sure he doesn't take advantage of the fragile and confused woman. And that is where the whole series ended. Then. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Paul, before we start looking at the stories, uh, let's look at the four covers. Uh, the cover for Night Force number 11, uh, it has a new blurb up at the top above it. It says, Beginning, a new saga in the lives of Night Force. Uh, and the mm. cover to issue 11 shows the Baron and Vanessa in the shadow of some you know, ghostly figure. There's a lot of black or... I guess on my copy, it's mostly kind of faded brown. Um, yeah, it's brown in mine. It's a very yeah. brown cover. Yeah, yeah. And you see kind of like, it looks like the the shadow of whatever this form is would have some kind of like popped collar is in front of like a window or something because there's kind of like slits behind it, but you see its eyes glowing. Or his head's hollow and he's got eye holes. <laughs> that could be it too. <laughs> what do you think of this cover for number 11? Well, it looks like Jack O'Lantern from the uh, Global Guardians is coming at them. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I I like this cover. I don't like the coloring. And I actually I no. like this is the cover that is used for the uh, trade paperback collection or the hardcover collection that came out recently. Um, and it's recolored. Like the black is black, and it looks so much better. Um, and they also the, the the shadow's eyes are red on that cover instead of the same as the background, so you wouldn't think that it's just hollow. Um, but... well, not many people would think that. That's more a Paul Hicks thing. So. <laughs> 
Um, but the, the color notwithstanding, because you're right, it just looks very brown and very drab, and I don't like how me that color looks. But if you recolored it, or if you looked at it in just black and white, then I really like this cover. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it is dramatic. Um, perhaps there's an issue with the colorist of the cover. Yeah. I wonder if that's Michelle Wolfman. Um, not sure if the colorist... She's the colorist on all the issues. So. Yeah, so... Yeah, but I like again. Like there, there's that one little hang-up of I don't like the color. But the, if it, we were just talking about like a black and white, or if the color was recolored, um, then I think this is one of the better covers of the entire series. Um, and I, I understand why it was the cover of the trade paperback. Yeah, and definitely the best of the four we're looking at. Yeah, today. yeah. Uh, so looking at the cover <laughs> to number twelve, we see uh, the Baron and Vanessa. They're in the carnival. Um, and they are leading the the great beast, which looks again like kind of like it has like the body of a kimono dragon with seven heads that are like kind of like furry like lions with horns, and they're all wearing crowns. Horny uh, heads. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about this one, like I can't tell if the Baron and Vanessa are running from this thing or if they're kind of like brisk walking and it's following along like their pet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's ridiculously large. Like, its paw would crush both of them instantly. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, what a challenge to draw that. I mean, and, you know, hats off to Gene Collin for giving it a go. And I wonder if the description of this thing is straight out of the Book of Revelations. So, mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, because it's, you know, the many-headed beast with the crowns and the the mark of 666 on its foreheads. And, right. yeah, right, yeah. There's a, lot, there's a lot going on with this creature. I mean, it does look like it's got... Um, you know, it's not so much that the heads are all connected to the body, but there's like two rows of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably helps to see that. Uh, yeah, I imagine uh, Gene was like, I've I got to draw what? <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, if that's what you need. <laughs> if that's what the young kids want to see. <laughs> yeah, it's all about the beast. Mm-hmm. Then the cover to Night Force number 13, um, it shows the Baron chained to a giant swastika in flames. And it says it begins well, the origin of the Baron. It, it looks like he, you know, could just be singing a chorus from a musical with... I mean, the chains don't seem to be that connected to the swastika. Um. <laughs> you're, yeah, actually, you're right. Like He, he kind of looks like he just broke free and he's got his arms out. <laughs> like, and, he's, yeah. and he's singing about having confidence or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, it's a great drawing of him. I'm not sure if it conveys the terror. I mean, uh, it's seeing a swastika anywhere always gives me pause and a little bit of discomfort. I must admit. Yeah, I, I kind of thought the same thing. I was, like, it's one of those things where you look at it and it's like, hmm, that's a really big swastika. It's like, do I want to buy this book? Like, do I want to hand this over to the cashier and just say, yes, I would like to leave with this thing? Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, as far as this cover particularly, it feels like the whole story has sort of left behind the, the Nazi stuff by this stage and just gone full on Satanism. Um, so seeing it here is just like, well, it's a little bit late in the story to do that, whereas this would have been a better cover for um, number 11, where there were actual, you know, yeah, uh, Hitler in right, the book yeah, and things like that. Number 11. Like, yeah, by this point, it's like the Nazis aren't part of the story anymore. And. Yeah, he's not, like, part of this. It, yeah, it, it's, like, weird. It's, like, the whole contrast. It's, like, the Baron's origins are steeped in the Nazis or something like this, or this culture. It's, like, no, this has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the promise it, it the origin of the Baron, and it's like, eh, not so much. Not really. We'll, we'll definitely yeah. get into that. Um, because when we get to 14, and the top left corner by the DC bullet says the final fear fraught issue. Um, oh boy. So, how would you describe Yeah, this cover's a, a hot mess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like. Uh, it's it's a problem when I like the things that my eyes keep going to are the top left corner where it says final fear fraught issue as you just said, and the bottom right corner where it says Superman three movie sweepstakes details inside. So ooh, I must check that out. Yeah, yeah uh, well, there's a blue dragon. Um, there's um, a lady in a pink dress flying in front with a hot hand, <laughs> and um, yeah, and then it yeah. looks like a cameo by. Um, well, Mola Ram from uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or something in the bottom corner. Right. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's supposed to be Katina, the the woman that uh, we meet throughout the series fighting a dragon. And I'm assuming, like, the dragon is supposed to be controlled by that guy, Alpha Omega, at the bottom. But it's... <sighs> yeah, I, I yeah. don't like this one. It's... Yeah, and mine's got a uh, 50 cents written in marker across the middle as well. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, might have overpaid, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, this one, uh, like, it doesn't feel like a Night Force cover at all. Mm-mm. You know, it, no. it looks like it, it looks sort of mystical kung fu stuff going on or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the the dragon doesn't look like the monsters that we've seen in this story. Certainly not the the one on the cover to number twelve. Yeah, it's a very eastern-looking dragon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the entire story kind of feels like that. Or the entire cover looks like that. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so I think we some diminishing returns with the covers. I, I think they started strong and then got weaker progressively. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of feel that way about the story arc itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I get the feeling... God, I don't even know. Like I, I'm not sure at what point Wolfman knew that this book was going to be canceled. He definitely he mentions, uh, like in the letters column of issue 13, Wolfman announces that the book is being canceled with issue 14. Um, but noticeably, he says the book will return as a series as a four issue mini series the following year and every year after that. They're like, you know, we've got some dedicated readers, but it's not enough to maintain this series, so we're going to keep doing Night Force as four-issue miniseries every year. But obviously that never happened. Didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Apparently it didn't. No. But, oh, man, the last two issues of this story are really problematic. Um, oh, they suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay, let's let's sort of uh, let's take them. Let's kind start of, at the start. Yeah, let's start at the start. Um, first of all, I like the beginning. I like the whole intro. This mansion on the coast of Maine, which I look at the house that's drawn several times, and it reminds me of the exterior shots of Collinsport, which is the mansion in the old TV show Dark Shadows. But yeah. it's not exactly. It doesn't look like Gene Colan drew, like, modeled this house after that one. But that's just the way it reminds me. So it's possible he was just looking at other photo reference of mansions on the in Maine. But what a good cliff. It's, I mean, it's such a, uh, you know, it's a setting that's really rich with potential. Looks very dramatic. 
So then we get these uh, American businessmen who have basically been propping up and financing Adolf Hitler across the ocean for their own means. Uh, and then a couple of Nazis kick in the door and murder all of them violently in like a full a full page of just seven people being shot up and killed. Yeah. And it, there's I mean the way this is drawn, there's no doubt that all of these people are dead. Like there's bullets going through their heads and their necks and their legs and you know, and one guy's on the phone on the next page he gets a bullet through his head which breaks the phone and yeah. Uh, and then the the Nazi agents quickly, rather than be discovered, they throw themselves out the window and die in the cliffs of the ocean below. If you're doing a stealth Nazi mission, maybe not wear the swastikas <laughs> on the arms. <laughs> but it is a really good shorthand to tell us who who they are and who sent them. So right, right. Yeah, but they. I mean, I I love that they all leap out the windows and go down the cliff, and they bounce off the cliff on their way down <laughs> a few times. Yeah. Um, and then we get the police showing up, and one of the one of the policemen is called Elliot. I don't know about you. I assumed that was Detective Elliot Short, who we have seen in previous issues, but this was him as a young uniformed cop. Um, oh. I, I, I assume that it might just be a coincidence that they have the same name, Elliot. Um, if it's not, if it is meant to be the same guy, this means he would have been a uniformed cop back in 1934. So then as a detective in the first arc, he would have, like, which was in the 80s, then he's got to be, like, in his 70s at least, I think. Um, Mm. And he doesn't look like that in the previous arc. But I also think, I think most police departments have mandatory retirement ages before that. I think they mandatory retirement at age 55 for any, like, kind of, like, field work type of, like, personnel or something like that, like a detective. I could be wrong, but I think that's the case. So... Mm. Well, it could just be coincidence. I mean, Marv Wolfman, uh, you know, his character names weren't always very um, imaginative. Right. Then we actually show Adolf Hitler asleep in Germany being tormented in his dreams by the ghosts of the men that he just ordered murdered. And I don't know about you, but I, I stopped reading the book at this point. I was like, is are they trying to make Hitler sympathetic? <laughs> Uh, I hope not. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know. He's he's like the caption. He is currently German's chancellor, but soon, when President Paul von Hindenburg dies, he will be appointed Führer. Tonight, however, he fitfully sleeps uneasy over the assassination he ordered, hoping against hope nothing has gone wrong. And then, like the the ghosts are taunting him and everything, and he Hitler wakes up screaming and terrified. I'm just like this is this feels weird. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I'm all in favor of anything hassling Hitler. Um, right. As much as they want. Um, and given how powerful these people turn out to be later, you know, it seems that making him sleep uneasily and um, cursing him a bit is, you know, the least they could do to him, really. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that, I mean, uh, we find out in the next chapter of the book, really, what they're about and up to. Right, right. Um, my other quick little notes from issue 11. Um, hey, we get to see Jack Gold and Vanessa again. Um, yeah. And Jack is still behaving like an ass. <laughs> yeah, I'm still a prick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a hassle. He's got a cheerful wife. <laughs> right, right. What a uh, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who, who loves him unconditionally. And that's, that's, such a, that's such a strain, dude. What a, <laughs> what a drag. What a burden. Yeah. <laughs> um. Then when we get the Baron and Vanessa, it's like, oh man, this 
this couple might be even worse because the Baron takes Vanessa into this room that he describes like used to be a movie set room and he's like, boy, the number of actresses who've been on this bed and dude, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And like he even he makes some jokes about how long it takes women to get dressed and everything like that and it's like what are you like are you trying to be like a stand up comedian in the 90s uh, yeah. like, this is painful to read some of this I mean uh, visually on this page I got a real Philip Seymour Hoffman vibe off uh, the Baron who would you see as he, playing him oh gosh this sounds like a secret question I feel like I'm Sean <laughs> gosh I, I haven't thought about that um hmm god I don't know who who would be you Oh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, except he's dead. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, I don't know. And then, obviously, somebody who can order an egg cream. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a weird bit? I mean, I feel like I'm, my one takeaway from this uh, last arc will be the egg cream thing. It's the most memorable part of this entire arc. Yeah. Is, um, like he explains what an egg cream is and you know how it's made and uh, you know their taste and they're not as good anymore in the in the future and <laughs> okay good <laughs> it sounds like marv suddenly decided to lecture people about how good egg creams used to be mm-hmm. and one thing that we get kind of consistently through this arc is where the issue breaks are and like they're not good cliffhangers for the most part uh, no and uh, I, we can move on to number twelve if you're ready. Like, I, I don't sure. Know anything else? Or, yeah. Like the the my big thing from number eleven was how creepy and weird Baron Winters got at the end. Like when he was waiting for waiting for Vanessa. But then, yeah, the egg cream thing. Yeah, um, it continues. <laughs> yeah, uh, for issue twelve, I liked on page sixteen when he's looking up like the beast in the Book of Revelations or whatever. And the the third the final panel on that page when he kind of you see the flash of Carter with the six 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 on his head like kind of like behind him as he's kind of looking up and making a like a mental calculation or realization I like that effect yeah it was a bit of a clue <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing that stood out to me is what is that kid doing to the hot dog on page one like that's not how you eat a hot dog <laughs> no it's not. No, it's not. It's kind of... Uh... Anyway, I feel bad for pointing that out, but it did stand no, out to me. No, you got You got to. <laughs> um, but this issue, like, we... This this kind of, like, starts the trend of the story is, like, did Baron know what he was getting into? Why did he feel like he had to handle this personally if he was completely unprepared for this one? Yeah. Like, the questions kind of got more and more, like... All right, I, I was going to kind of bring this up towards the end, but this is going to be kind of like the predominant thing throughout my feelings on the last couple of issues, is I think Baron Winters is the worst part of this series. Like, yeah. Initially, he was enigmatic and he was interesting because he seemed to be like a mover and shaker. He He was the puppet master kind of arranging all of these things. Sometimes that was really cool in the first couple of issues, and then it kind of got frustrating because it's like... Dude, just stop speaking in riddles and just tell us what's going on, or or why can't you get off your butt and like do this yourself? And and there was just some kind of like a haughty arrogance about him that was annoying. The thing is, once you put him in the lead, like as a supporting character, 
he's he can be frustrating, but he's also interesting and and at times entertaining. And he can there's there's avenues for humor the way he's talking to Merlin and everything. His pet <laughs> leopard or jaguar, whatever. Mm. But when he's the main character, he's just kind of insufferable. And I mm. think part of that is because Marv still wants to keep him mysterious and still wants to keep his motivations cloudy so that you don't know if you can trust this guy. It's like, but he's kind of our POV character for this. And it's, if you're keeping that much about him mysterious, it's, it feels like you don't know what you're doing what you, or you don't know how to write this character. Yeah. And he's, you know, it's the, he's the puppet master. You don't make the puppet master, the main character yeah. and you don't make the puppet master, you know, pull his own strings, which is what he's basically doing here. I mean, there's a bit in this, uh, in, sec- in 12 where he sends Vanessa and Jack to the mansion. And it's like, why, why are you sending them there? Like last time people were at the mansion, you know, um, the girl got, um, ghost kissed right. and the guy got, um, disfigured by, um, the 666 on his forehead so why would you send people back there you know you obviously know it's a dangerous place you know and you don't really need you know it's a very flimsy reason that he sends them there and they get attacked and it leads to another jeopardy moment that he has to you know intercede because uh he cares about vanessa so much right which kind of leads to the end of issue 12 which is uh, he he connects with this woman katina from his past and her son who hates the baron we'll find out why and the last couple of pages is like Katina starts levitating and does this whole spectral light show and everything, but it's like, what just happened? Yeah. And and then when we get to issue thirteen, it's kind of like, like none of that just happened. It was sort of like they they didn't know how to end the issue. Uh, you you kind of mentioned uh, the last episode how it felt like Marvel was just kind of like writing stream of conscious. He was just kind of like flying mm. by his pants. I do feel like that's kind of where this one was going, and then. He maybe he had a roadmap or what he was planning. But by the time the word came down, as hey, we're canceling this book. You've got like you know one or two more issues. He had this plan for what he was going to reveal about the Baron, and then he just kind of like rushed to throw this in because the last two issues, thirteen and fourteen, are a real mess. They're rough. <laughs> yeah. Um, first, Baron lies to them about Vanessa being his daughter, which is felt very like even as he is explaining like that Vanessa like when he I first read this when he's saying that Vanessa was his daughter, I was like, this is a convincing story. I bet he's lying, <laughs> and that turned out to be the case. <laughs> um, a few little details. Jack actually says he loves Vanessa in the moment before they're about to die, which is you know that's cute. He finally oh, does that. That's nice. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happens to the woman Harriet Carter who had been possessed after her husband dies. She just kind of disappears. Um, well, yeah. unborn, obviously. <laughs> right. But then, like the most of the like the whole crux of this issue is that the Baron and Katina go into this memory pit to like reveal something about his origin, and the Baron's like reluctance. He's like, "No, I don't want to see this." Like, there's this this petulance about him that just feels very childish and it makes Oh, it's so melodramatic and it's like, I don't want to but I must and we can't but we shall and I don't want to do it and I resent you but I love you but I hate this. You know, it's just, he needs a slap halfway through this. Yeah, he really does and again, like, you like when it's a character like the Baron who we've seen be like this master manipulator, seeing him like really insecure and off his footing and everything like that, it's just it's jarring to see him like this and it's not done in a good way and it's because of no. you know how how childish and 
indecisive he says and what you I think what you you nailed it exactly the the melodramatic and like the I I refuse to do that okay I'll do it but I'm, I'm doing it under protest and I'm not gonna go in there and it's and <laughs> yeah it's so and then so he so they get naked and they jump into this like pit of colors and smoke and flashback to their history where it's like okay they were in part of this cult and they were reading and their love was forbidden but they fell in love anyway and then bizarrely the very end of 13 like this weird kind of super villain looking thing comes to kill them with a laser gun yeah it's um like a random space knight thing yes like what what book what series is this thing from because it's not from night force there's nothing like this isn't like a supernatural thing. This looks like an Iron Man villain from the 70s. Yeah, or an Atomic Knight yes, thing. Yeah. It's 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 so weird. But yeah, I really I I felt like the the book lost me in this issue and mm-hmm. it was just like like um I mean Katina coming in and and being introduced and being so important to the Baron and we you know there's I don't think it's earned in the writing like she's she's just a character who showed up and who can sort of uh, she's in a wheelchair but she can be spectral um you know and they had a forbidden love but we never see any evidence of any chemistry between them apart from you know oh hi you're sitting next to me i've just noticed that you're a woman you know (laughs) that's as deep as it looks and then so once we get to it's like 14 um, they're being attacked by this thing, and Katina's son, Goan, who we'll also figure out is also the Baron's son, and that's part of the reason why he hates the Baron, Goan comes in, kills this Space Knight villain, something like that, and then they leave this memory pit flashback thing or whatever, and it's like, all right. Well, sorry, sorry, can I just stop you? Yeah. All right, go on. Okay. Go on. <laughs> shut up. Sorry. I'm just <laughs> I was like, what the? Oh, go on. Yeah, shut up. <laughs> I'm so glad. No, go on. Is, I'm, I'm so glad this is the end of the series. <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> the, the, the son go on, um, and so he comes and he he kind of like saves them, and then they leave this memory pit and they work to. It's wait, what was the whole point of that memory pit flashback thing? Why did they have to go back there in the last issue? Like Wolfman was like, "Yep, this is the last book, so probably should get them out of that thing so we can resolve the main plot." And it's. Oh, like my yeah, like my note for issue fourteen was just a big WTF. It's like, what mm. the hell is going on? So, uh, yeah. but at least he picked up a new secretary. <laughs> yes, yeah. By the end of it, which, holy crap! Like, it feels like the book ends. The final note of the series is that Katina and her son go on are blocking the Baron. Because it's like, yeah. he picks up this woman from the 30s, brings her into the 80s, he's like, hey, you don't know anybody, you can't go back, you're, you'll die in, like, the war or something. He's like, but stay with me, and I'll kind of, like, show you around and everything. She's like, you'll, you'll be my guy. He's like, oh, yeah, I got this covered. And he's, like, pouring her a stiff drink. And the lady, and Katina's like, yeah, we're staying here, too. We're not leaving you alone with this impressionable woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. And he, I mean, he got $100,000 for all this for doing, you know, he's... He... <laughs> Cleared out the ghost from the house, even though the other guy burst into flames. And uh, but he got his money before that happened. So yeah, yeah win-win. Right. <laughs> All told, it was a good day for the bear. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a bizarre note. I mean, it, the story really 
you know, like it's at the start of this arc, it's all like, oh, it's Nazis and intrigue and it's, you know, espionage and excitement and sort of James Bondy. And then it just turns into, you know, fluoro dragon fighting. Um, and then it, you know, gets naked astral fighting. And it's like, <laughs> what? Why? I don't understand. Yeah, it's it's. Like yeah, like I, I thought the the story arc started strong. I liked where they were going to be doing some time traveling, and you know, fighting you know like the, these satanic Nazi uh, like propagandists like in order to like rid to do like an exorcism on this house and everything. But then it just it went off the rails, and it felt like Marvel was cramming this origin for the Baron, which first of all was not a good origin, nor was it pretty well told, and just the way he was telling the character like. He, I, I didn't, I didn't like the Baron in the story arc. I never cared about him because of the way he was acting, and so the story had no stakes for me. And like, if if I don't care about the main character, and the threat is just kind of like this nebulous supernatural thing, but it's also in the past, so it's clearly like not like a, a dire threat today. It's just, yeah, it, it's a bad story. It's it's a it's tough to go out on this note. But this was a very bad story arc and, and a rough way to end the series. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it just felt like the book got away from its premise, you know, in such a bad way. Like I like the idea of um, you know, there's missions and you need a, a force to battle them, and you know they're expendable. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, you know, the Baron didn't know what he was doing, even though he acted like he knew what he was doing, but. You know, it was such a mess. I didn't, yeah, so disappointing after such a, you know, strong start. I mean, the first, well, 10 issues are great on the whole. Yeah. I mean, there's some weirdness in there, but, you know, it's it's pretty strong. And then, you know, it does really fizzle out unexpectedly. Yeah, like the, the first story arc, which was like seven and a half issues, actually, because it started in the preview, so it was really like eight whole issues, um, for that first story arc, I really, really dig that story. I felt like that was... I could have seen that as like a a Stephen King or a Dean Koontz horror novel from the 80s dealing with the supernatural and ESP and, you know, secret, you know, KGB government, like, spooks and stuff like this and all those things. Like, I could have seen that as a movie or a novel and this was just a, you know, the comic book adaptation or inspiration for that. I thought it was really well done. I thought the second story arc was a little problematic, like as we talked about, but overall it was a fun short story. It could have been a little bit shorter, or perhaps it needed to be a little bit longer. Like I, I don't think like the format was quite right. They could have restructured it, but I liked that story. I liked the idea of the people trapped with this monster uh, and how, mm. how that got resolved. Well, it's one re- rewrite away from being great, that yeah, story. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably a good, good way to look at it. Um, this one, I kind of felt like Marv Wolfman had a plan, and then maybe editorial summit up high said, hey, you need to do like an origin of the Baron. Like, I don't know if that was his idea or if somebody else like was kind of like forcing him to do it, but we need to find out who this character is and what makes him tick. And but maybe Marv Wolfman never really had an idea or never wanted to do that. Um, because it feels thrown in in a rush, and it's not very good or interesting. Um, yeah, and it it doesn't feel like for an origin. It feel it has no sense of time or place. The only takeaway I got from it, was he went to mystical school and you know somewhere, 
and sometime <laughs> you know yeah, there isn't yeah. like you know it's it's the 12th century or anything like that to you know say and it was in you know, Japan or Mexico right. who knows let's, you know there's, let's also, there's nothing like, yeah and i think it's also like worth mentioning like we we keep calling it an origin because that's what it was called but it's not an origin story it doesn't it's it's basically like a flashback to him when he was a kid learning to be somewhat supernatural and fall in love but we don't know how he got the house why the house can do what it does with all these like time and space shifts or anything like that like we don't know how old he is how he started down this path like what his power sets are mm. like it's not really an origin it's just a flashback to an event from his past but we don't like it not enough to like really shape who he is today so it's yeah. Uh, there's a little weird discussion about Merlin too that makes Merlin sound like you know the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars, where it used <laughs> yeah. to belong to Lando. Yes. Yeah, it used to be uh, used to be Katina's, and then, but it's like she lost him in the divorce. So yeah, <laughs> these are the terms. <laughs> he gets the cat. Sorry. Yeah. Ah, uh, so I don't know. Like, yeah, this is this is an unfortunate way to end the series because it's. Clearly, it was, I don't think Marv Wolfman wanted to end it here, but he was just forced to. So he he rushed the ending, and it's not good. But maybe maybe what the series should have been all along was you know four issue miniseries that could have been plotted out a little bit more in advance, could have been thought out, had that one more rewrite that you that you think it kind of needed, um, and maybe had this series kind of like done that from the beginning it might have had some longevity and kind of kept going and and we could have gotten some interesting stories out of that i don't know but uh mm. yeah i think i would like to see more stories with the stakes not as high <laughs> does that make sense yeah like more achievable missions even though you know people give their lives for them but you know, this one was like, oh, it's everything to do with, you know, the devil and the beast, etc. But it, it was too big and it, you know, became ungraspable because of that. Yeah. I mean, was that like, I'm I'm glad we covered this um, in part because I, I still, I really, really like the first story arc. I think that's worth it. Like, if I didn't already have the floppy issues, I probably would buy the collection just so that I could revisit the first story arc. I think that's strong enough uh, to recommend the series on the whole, um, yeah, it's, it's, this was. I'm glad we covered this. Uh, you know, I had fun. Um, I, I like collecting these, and, and even even my problems with the story. And I really like Gene Colan's art still in this, even though towards the end, a lot of this is just kind of devolving into characters doing stuff in smoke or light shows, and you're kind of losing yep. a lot of the background, a lot of the storytelling. He's not able to salvage probably just because of what the, the script was demanding, but it's still it's still pretty to look at. So, yeah, I've certainly enjoyed coming on board. To re- I mean, this was a first read for me, and uh, I I did it because I'd get to podcast with you, which was the appeal. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Would you, shall we do countdown next or something like that? <laughs> God, please no. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, um, that is the other thing. Um, you know, when I started Midnight the Podcasting Hour, I had all these lofty goals of the series I was going to, and poor Doug Zavisha. I, Doug, if you're listening, and you're probably not, but I promise I will get you back on the show to talk about any dead man story of your choice. Um, because that was like the first one where after I released his first episode, I was like, hey, by the way, my schedule is changing and I, I'm not going to do dead man anymore. You're fired. And I felt so I felt so bad about that. Um, 
But yeah, I'm still slowly plugging along at the Swamp Thing stories and the Spectre stories for a little bit. Um, I, I definitely I want to cover all of the Bernie rights and issues of Swamp Thing, which will mean ten chapters of that. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the first one that I actually did what I set out to do, which was cover this whole series with you, and I am really glad that we've had these chances because, um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to talk about these with you. Thanks very much. So, um, Have you got time to say the nice stuff you didn't have time to last time about me? Uh, no. <laughs> Bugger. Nah, maybe next time. Or I'll wait till uh, the end of this episode when I get to the listener feedback. So, um, <laughs> Before that, um, folks, um, I will be certainly sticking around Midnight the Podcasting Hour, but um, Paul, for now at least, where else can people find you in the podcastosphere? Well, um, Waiting for Doom is it's an exciting year for Waiting for Doom. We've got the TV show starting in February, so um, hopefully that doesn't suck. <laughs> um, and we'll be talking more about the Doom Patrol in Waiting for Doom, me and Mike. And um, DC OCD will be continuing, and we're hitting the uh, 2000s. So some some good and bad there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How, how many Doom Patrol comics that have been published do you guys still have to cover? Um, we have pretty much a solid year ahead of us um, okay. with what we have left. Um, our, our schedule does get a bit stretched occasionally, but um, yeah, there's probably a, a good you know twenty or so episodes left in the comics we haven't published. We've got to do the Keith Giffen run, and there's a few um, oh, sort yeah. of Infinite Crisis appearances and Fifty Two and things like that. All right. Well, Paul, thank you as always for being my guest on these episodes of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Um, I'm glad that we finished this up. Uh, hooray, Night Force! <laughs> yeah, play the theme. <laughs> Night Force! <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> listeners, we're going to take a short promo break right now. Um, I'll be back on the other side with listener feedback, so don't go away. What is Council of Geeks? Well, despite the name, it's actually just one kind of pretentious guy on YouTube who rants at camera a lot and just goes on and on about things like Doctor Who and Marvel movies and Star Wars and... I meant, once the Council of Geeks podcast feed? Oh, that. Well, it kind of depends on when it is you're looking at it. What does that mean? Well, it's been a lot of things at a lot of different times. Originally, it was just longer versions of roundtable talks that uh, the guy who runs the thing used to have. It was the home of 90s Comics Retrial for a while. Oh, I liked that show. Yeah, but, you know, then he did Executioner's Song and it broke him, so he doesn't do that anymore either. Oh. There was Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk. Winner of the Relatively Geeky Networks Award for Best New Podcast in 2017. Yep, that's the one. That's over, too. His co-host had a kid, and, well, he didn't bother ever trying to find somebody else. Oh. So what is it now? Well, at the moment, it is home to see a space cowboy, where he is just going back through Cowboy Bebop and uh, taking it one episode at a time, putting his thoughts up after not having seen the thing in about 15 years. Okay. Well, what will it be after he's done with that? Stick around, and maybe you'll find out what's next. Or catch up on the old stuff. It's still there. This is a very strange promotion. Yeah, well, he's a strange guy. Thank you. 
All right, on to the listener feedback from last episode, which was episode 21, in which the Irredeemable Shag and I covered the Spectre story from Adventure Comics 433, and also Paul and I covered the previous Night Force story from issues 8 through 10. These are the comments that were left on the Fire and Water website post, and you've probably noticed that I haven't been mentioning the Facebook and Twitter mentions lately. That's kind of been across the board for all of my shows, and the reason is I'm posting new episodes so irregularly, at times haphazardly, that it can be really time-consuming to sift through my Twitter and Facebook feeds, going back sometimes months to see the names of who liked and shared the book. So, to save myself a lot of work, I just, I skip that part now. But... I absolutely do appreciate all of the support that these shows receive and the people who share and retweet and favorite. I get those notifications at the time, and it always makes me feel good. But now, yes, on to the comments episode 21 received on the website. The first comment came from Gene Hendricks of the Hammer Podcasts and the Class 1000 Podcast. During my discussion of the Spectre story with Shag, I mentioned how the climax of the story was similar to the climax of the Spectre's third appearance, which was redone in the Secret Origin of the Spectre story that I covered with Gene on the Secret Origins podcast, lo these many years ago. Gene corrected me a little bit, saying, In the Secret Origins issue, the villain, the great Rami, sees the Spectre rise out of a crystal ball, but he is then trapped in a mirror which the Spectre shatters with the bullet meant to kill his fiancée, Clarice. Same idea, shattering the bad guy, but a different method. To which I replied, Well, it shows how much of that series and that podcast I have already blocked out of my mind. But thank you for the correction, Gene. Uh, next up, Chris Franklin from such shows as JLUcast and Superman Movie Minute right here on this very network said, Man, you just can't beat Aparo in the mid-70s. I love his work from all periods, yes, even his last Batman stuff in the early 90s, despite a series of inappropriate inkers, but this Spectre story is prime Aparo. So much raw kinetic energy on those pages. Just gorgeous stuff. The scene with the ghosts dragging the guy down is pretty chilling. Also chilling is that Night Force story, downright depressing for a code-approved comic, but just from your examination, I think I can see why the series didn't catch on. It's not quite a team book, and it's not quite a horror anthology book, it's somewhere in between, and it's kind of hard to categorize. Shifting the focus to a murderous lech for three issues does not a compelling ongoing series make, even if the story and art are strong like they are here. Yeah, I agree with that, Chris, and I think the sales numbers bore that out, too. I mean, we'll never know, really, but maybe Marv Wolfman's plan to turn Night Force into a limited series that came out every year, like every spring you get a new Night Force miniseries with a different cast and story. Maybe that would have thrived, because the expectations would have been easier to manage, but I don't know. Uh, Ted Kilvington said, In one of the early issues of Night Force, Wolfman stated that it was one of his goals to have unlikable protagonists. Well, yeah, and I think Paul and I have always agreed that, you know, the the protagonists in these stories are definitely flawed, and some of them are really unlikable. I think Wolfman might have been too successful in this last arc, because Paul and I both agree the Baron, no, there isn't really nothing likable about him this time around. Uh, Ted also said, I think the scene with the Spectre turning the villain into a candle was Dr. Light from the 2008 Spectre tie-in to Final Crisis Revelations by Greg Rucka and Philip Tan. You know, Shag brought up remembering the Spectre turning someone into a candle and burning them. While I was editing the last episode, I thought, oh yeah, he did that to Dr. Light at some point. 
But as Shad came back to say, while that 2008 scene may have happened, it wasn't the one I'm thinking of. This is something I would have read in the 1990s. I can only assume I'm misremembering the guy who melted from an earlier Fleischer Aparo story. Uh, then later, Shag came back on the comments to say, just listen to this episode, because I like the sound of my own voice, and re-listen to the previous Spectre episode, because I'm a masochist listening to Nathaniel Wayne. Oh geez, I screwed up. On the episode, I said Nathaniel crapped all over the comic and the animated short. That wasn't exactly true. On the previous episode, while Nathaniel was a contrarian who hates everything good and did crap all over the comic, he was actually somewhat complimentary of the animated short. He liked it better upon second viewing after having read the Spectre comic. So, and this hurts to type, I was wrong about Nathaniel and the animated short. Jeez, that actually burns my fingertips just to type those words. Just one favor to ask, whatever you do, don't tell Nathaniel about this. I couldn't bear him knowing I was wrong in regard to him. This can be our little secret. Okay, yeah, that's a deal. You know, I probably should have caught that mistake too, since you know I had talked to Nathaniel about it, but... As I mentioned, it had been so long since that episode, and again, that that episode with Nathaniel came out the day my son was born. Like, I probably have a mental block over everything that was said there. So when Shag said Nathaniel was crapping on the animated short, I was like, yeah, that sounds right. I don't remember. I don't even know what we talked about that episode. Abel Movada said, wow, a new episode discussing Night Force? It's like stepping through one of Baron Winter's time portals back to 2017. <laughs> Ah, I know, right? And now we're doing it again, but traveling way, way back to 2018. Uh, Abel continues, I agree with all the criticism of the story, and I liked Paul's idea that it was very likely a stream of consciousness writing, much like this comment. Still, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Part of that is probably because it was the only Night Force story I read as a boy, and its creepy flesh-eating blob monster has stayed with me all of these years. Not literally, I can go outside as I please, thank you very much. Also because half-baked though it may be, again, like this comment, it's an interesting and sadly relevant metaphor of consumerism and apathy that seems all too believable. I would go outside, but my favorite TV show is on, and I've got all these candy bars to eat, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sense of relevance about that story now, though I would say it's the way that we consume media more than physical objects that has turned us into prisoners in our own homes. And finally, Paul Hicks asked that he receive credit for the lyrics to the Night Force theme song. Well, Paul, as a reward for being such a good co-host on all of these episodes, you got it. The Night Force theme is now officially music by Neil Daly with lyrics by Paul Hicks. Well done. And that is going to close out this episode, but with any luck, you shouldn't have to wait very long for the next one, because I have already recorded the two segments with two brand new guests to the show. All I need to do is edit the thing, which I can start doing as soon as... Hang on. Sorry, I'm, I'm waiting for the bell to chime to sort of lead me out. I thought I had this timed better. Ah, there it is. Okay, until next time. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. 
You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.